0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today is a solo show, and we are going to knock out some extra questions. So instead of hitting you with a topic this week on this fine Monday, we are going to do a QA. and a So you're going to have two Q&As this week, this being the first and the second being on Friday. Um, so we have a lot, uh, we have a plethora of questions from all over the place, which is why I'm diving into them today. So without any further ado, let's start with the drum roll Instagram ones. We'll start with Instagram questions today. Uh, and I'm just going to crank through as many of these as I can. I know I say this often, but I'm going to try to do a rapid fire style Q and a, which I think I'll be able to do because it's just me here in the studio. Uh, and we're going to start here with Sammy B B fit. Sammy BB fit. What is your absolute favorite thing about being a dad? So a personality question to start us off with. Um, this is such a hard question. I think to be, to be honest with you, I think like most people will understand this. If you have children, uh, there's something just extremely fascinating about being a parent, you know, and I've always been this way. I'm uh, very, very intrigued by processes. And, um, I, am really like big on like just, why? <laughs> why is this happening? Right? Why? What's the why behind all this sh- crazy shit? Uh, and the biggest thing with that is, is just like, man, it's, it's such an insane process. The fact that this baby grows inside of this person. So I think for me, the one of the coolest things about being a dad, one of my favorite things, is really just watching her play, watching her learn, watching her think. Because I'm so intrigued and fascinated. Why she's even here in the first place? It just blows my mind. And it's such an amazing process that i really love just just observing you know so when we go downstairs and she's in her toy room and she's playing and she's talking with her animals. she's got her imagination going she's thinking about stuff i love that she's super into drawing right now and she's actually really really good for her age which um, i like to think she gets from me her mom says the same thing because i'm really uh I don't mean, know, like fuck, pro artist, but I'm pretty good at drawing. I've always been uh, really good at drawing. I used to draw a a kid, and she's got really good skills with coloring the lines, drawing faces, and shit like that. It's actually pretty wild for her age, she's only three. Um, so it's been really cool. It's just I just love watching this stuff, you know. And then there's of course there's all these little things like when I come home from work and she's so stoked to see me uh, and she wants to play. Like she could be like like damn near falling asleep on the couch and she'll. Pop up because she hears the door open. She knows dad's home and it's time to play. I love that. Uh, even when I'm tired, you know, like, in, and I'm like, I, I barely have it in me, I still love it. Like, it just means the world to me. Um, it means the world to me when I leave for work, you know, like a lot of uh, parents who work will know this feeling. But like, even this morning, I was getting ready to go and she said, Dad, wait, I need to give you a big hug and kiss. And like that little thing right there, you know, like turning around, being able to squeeze her, hold her, and then knowing that she initiated it. Um, because she was ignoring me when I was trying to kiss her on the forehead and hug her and say I love her, and she was playing with her plate. <laughs> but uh, point being is, like, that stuff like that means the world to me. So uh, there's so many little things. I mean, I even, this sounds fucked up, but I love when she gets scared. It's, like, the cutest thing in the world, whether it's me jumping out of a corner, which is really weird. I don't know. Like, parents out there might know this, or people, if you have, like, nieces and nephews and people you care for, kids love being freaked out. Like, it's really weird. You know, if, if you scare me, if i'm walking in down the hall and my wife pops out from around the corner and scares me and i scream or get freaked out number 1 i'm embarrassed number 2 i'm pissed number 3 i'm probably going to like yell and and like say fuck you and get pissed you know cuz i'm embarrassed it's very it's, i mean it's a very normal thing as an adult kids love it Kids absolutely love when you pop out and scare the shit out of them and it's fun as hell but she always screams and then laughs and loves it. I never understood that. It's like so weird because I get so embarrassed and and just pissed when when you scare me, but she, she loves it. So I love... That, and, and honestly, even just in the morning, I can hear when she wakes up and the hallway's dark and she wants to run from her room into our bedroom to climb in bed with mom. And I'm downstairs reading in the morning. I can hear her little footsteps go like across the hallway like she's like <laughs> breathing really hard because <laughs> she's freaked out of the dark hallway uh, and it's cute as hell. So there's so much to be appreciative for, you know, so I love it. All right. Next question is from Don Prath Bunn. Can cycling be good for building muscle or should I only focus on cycling for cardio? I would mainly focus on it for cardio. It's actually a fun fact that I read in the Arnold Schwarzenegger Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, which if you're a trainer or a coach, you probably have that book or if you've heard of it, at least it's a very famous book, Um, goes down in the classics, it's a legendary book. And, uh, a lot of it is just sharing, like, uh, there is some science in there cause they did a revised version. So there's like some older science. So like probably needs to be checked up on, but there's, you know, somebody obviously came in and helped him write some of it. Uh, but there's a lot that is just, you know, what he used to do. And it's, it's really cool to see like what those bodybuilders did back in the day to, to get so freakishly big and to build muscle and to get shredded. And also, to hear their thought process. Like why are they doing this? Because a lot of times they didn't really understand the science behind it. Sometimes they were right and it's really interesting to see that they were right and they thought they were right because of XYZ but really science showed that it's something completely different working there uh, or it's a byproduct of what they're doing that's actually causing the result, so it's really interesting, but one of the things that he said was that, uh, I believe it was Tom Platz that he was talking about, and Tom Platz is known for just crazy quads uh, and squatting and stuff like that and bodybuilding back in the day, and he would ride 20 miles on the bike post uh, leg day, which is nuts, and he says in the book, it's for quad definition, however... I don't really think that's really what's going on there. Um, (laughs) You can't like cycle for extra definition. Really, what happened is he's just burning more fat because he's fucking pedaling away. And maybe there was some spot reduction there. uh, And that's what made his quads more shredded and give that crazier look, especially because he did a lot of quad work and he really focused on quads. He might have been genetically gifted in quads. Um, There is some spot reduction science that shows, you know, if you bring a lot of blood flow to a specific area, you might burn more fat there, which is why they would have people doing like a ton of crunches before cardio. Um, how effective that is. It's kind of split in hairs. It's a very, very small percentage difference that that's going to make, if at all. Uh, but point being is, is he would do that. So um, now the reason I bring this up is because it's just a cool, interesting fact. Realistically, to answer your question, can cycling be good for building muscle? I wouldn't say good. Can it build muscle? Yes. There's definitely cyclists out there that have just nasty-looking quads because they cycle a lot. And if we look at the mechanics from the hip to the to the ankle um, in an isolated form, so take your leg off of your body and do the movement of a, of a cycle, it actually mimics the squat pattern, right? Basically knee flexion, flexion and extension, knee and hip flexion and extension in a re- cyclical and repeated fashion, which is what the squat does. So you are making muscular contractions that would stimulate muscle growth, right? You're going to build muscle. Now, the problem is there's no eccentric loading here. Um, You're working in a muscular endurance range. so You can't really overload this significantly over time. So the adaptation curve just kind of sucks. So there's a lot of reasons why it's just not optimal. So when I say it's not good for building muscle, but you can build muscle, that's basically how you want to look at it. If this is what I would say. Don't use cycling as your form of muscle growth. Use it as your form of cardio. However, it's probably a better source of cardio compared to other forms uh, because it mimics the squat pattern and research has shown that biking can actually improve your squat, uh, 1RM and performance, but also because there's no eccentric loading on the joints. So... It's probably going to be better for your joints. It's probably going to be less muscle damage <coughs> on the, the actual muscles working itself because there's no eccentric loading. So when you do a squat, you're lowering with a heavy load. That's an eccentric load that creates a lot of muscle damage that creates delayed onset muscle soreness. This would not. So it's a great form of cardio. It's probably not your best suited like, thing for muscle growth. However, it will work for some muscle growth. And excuse me if I have to clear my throat a few times. I'm just getting over being sick, so it's uh, I'm trying to recover my voice. G. Benny asked, "Is it safe to train with back pain?" I will never say blanket, like a blanket statement of yes, it's safe because it's all individually dependent. So it depends on you, your movement quality and patterns. It depends on your your muscle tightness and soreness and, and stiffness and flexibility. It depends on your joint mobility. It depends on the specific back injury you uh, suffered from. Uh, it depends on your stop training. I mean, your goals. It just depends on so much. So I, I can't really say for sure. However, I would say it's it's recommended to program or to to train intelligently with caution. And the reason I say it like that is because you can't just go in the gym and, and just get after it like you normally do. You really got to pay attention with caution because you are more susceptible to getting hurt without a doubt in my mind. If you have a back injury, a low back injury, anything like that, and you go in the gym, you're more likely to get hurt. So you got to be very cautious. You also got to be cautious with your exercise selection. So you don't want to be doing specific movements. You probably should stay away from deadlifting from the floor. You should probably avoid loading your back like with a back squat or something like that. Um, Good morning's there's just certain things that are just a no-brainer, don't do it. I probably wouldn't even press a barbell overhead because you're more likely to go into uh, loaded hyperextension of the spine, and that might cause some issues, especially if the reason you have issues in the first place is because you're extension, uh, ex- extension intolerant, you could call it. And I believe there's, like, when we look at uh, Stuart McGill, I think is the one, but I could be butchering this. When he looked at, uh, or whoever it is that I'm thinking of, looked at the different forms or root causes that could cause back pain. A lot of times it's extension intolerance, rotation intolerance, or it is flexion intolerance. So you either have an issue with flexing the spine, extending the spine, or rotating the spine. And depending on which one of those is causing the issue, that's probably what you got to work on and attack. So um, with that being said is it safe to train with back? I mean, maybe you got to know what you should be avoiding and what you shouldn't be avoiding. And then just make sure when you go into the gym, you're just, you're paying attention to that specifically. So you're, you're doing this with caution. You're being very specific with the exercises you choose. A, Oh, and I should probably add to unilateral training is really smart. So shifting a lot of stuff to unilateral training is usually a good bet because it just, it splits the load on the spine in half, right? So if you do a 200 pound back squat, that's 100 pounds per leg, 200 pounds of spine. Well, you could do a 100 pound per leg split squat by doing holding 50 pound dumbbells, and then not having any of that load on your spine. Or even if you, we look at the load, which isn't on your back anymore, but even if it was on your back, still half the load on your spine. So there's things that you should be doing. Uh, but avoiding training completely is almost never the answer, unless you're literally to the point where you can't walk, you're just debilitated. Because if if you're hurt you want to get blood flow in the limbs you want to get oxygen you want to get movement it's why they also say like the whole rice thing rest ice, compression elevate that's not the best solution or answer for um somebody who is going through an injury you actually want to get blood flow through the joint that is injured you want to get movement through it so avoiding that is probably not the best answer a underscore <clears throat> leany people put feet on the bench while doing barbell slash dumbbell press or skull crushers, why or why not? Um, I don't think this is very advantageous for skull crushers by any means. So unless you feel more comfortable in that position for skull crushers, you can. For barbell and dumbbell bench press, there was a study that showed more pictorial activation. Now we have to be cautious with this because studies that use a... uh, Dim style, uh, reader. So something that is like basically looking for electrical impulses of the muscle is the muscle firing. Those are great. Like it's going to show you that the muscle is, is activating, but it's not necessarily the answer or the best way to track muscular growth or hypertrophy. So we don't want to look at that as like the end all be all. However, uh, it did show more activation. So this is also like they showed more activation than the decline press, um, which is taking that to a further extent. So putting your feet up on the bench, it, it can be useful to get more pec activation. That's why some people do it. The downside is, is that when you bring your feet up on the bench, you're probably going to be firing your core more, which most people will be like, oh, great, that's an awesome thing. Eh. I mean, yes, but at the same time, I would also say, hey, why don't you just train your core separately and then focus on training your chest and your shoulders and your triceps for the bench? You know what I mean? Like leave the movement to the movement itself. When we start going, well, if I can bench but also activate my quads and my core and my glutes and my calves and then I can tweak this and get my lats going, now all of a sudden it's not even a bench press, right? Right you're spreading the load across too much and you're being highly unspecific. So, and you're just getting fancy and overly functional, um, which isn't even functional. People try to get so functional that they create an exercise that is not even functional anymore. But that's a rant for another time. My point with this is, is I would rather not rely more on my core because it's just splitting hairs at that point. You don't get that much core activation. Um, And I probably wouldn't want to bring them up even to get more pec activation because I think this is where we split dividends. So if I keep my feet on the floor, I have more stability and more drive through my lower body and I'm going to be able to lift significantly more weight. Everybody knows who benches a lot. You can bench more weight with your feet on the floor and allowing yourself to drive your feet through the floor as you press the bar rather than having your feet elevated or hovering off the bench. You're just not going to be able to press as much, plain and simple. And at the end of the day, I think the volume you are pushing by the end of the sets that you're doing or by the end of the workout is much more important than the idea of getting a little bit more stimulation or activation out of your pec muscles. So I would keep your feet on the floor, drive through your feet, Lift heavier, that's going to increase total volume and intensity and effort, and that's going to lead to better results long-term than trying to get a little more chest activation by elevating your feet or uh, legs onto a bench. All right, Uh, Rachel uh, underscore Rachel Wheeler underscore. What biofeedback do you look for when implementing refeeds? Um, Typically psychological relief and performance or recovery. You know, like for the most part, We know at this point that refeed's main uh, function or purpose is going to be – it's really just uh, psychological relief, so relieving stress of dieting. Uh, taking off some of the stress that that dieting has on you mentally and then also making sure that you are um, replenishing glycogen and filling up muscle cells. So when we look at a lot of diet break and refeed research, most of it is just psychological. And the the latest one, the ice cap trial by uh, Jackson Piaz also showed that there was an increase in muscular endurance. And this makes sense because they saw a increase in muscular endurance. Uh, replenishment of glycogen, they saw, um, I mean, obviously, you're increasing carbohydrates, so you're going to have more intracellular glycogen, which is fuel for training, which means they were able to squeeze out a little bit more reps on everything, so it increased muscular endurance, which in my mind is another way to increase volume, really, so what I'm looking for is mainly just the psychological relief, so asking the client, like, did that give you psychological relief, did that lower stress, did that give you a little bit more motivation, more energy, uh, more mental drive, or, or... fortitude to get through the diet, to work through this um, and on top of that, like, do you feel better in the gym? Do you feel like you're recovering more? Do you Can we add a little bit more volume? I mean, research shows that if we take a refeed and we're having more glycogen, we might be able to push out some more reps. So let's do a little more volume. If it's just a one day refeed, then just that session or the next day. Um, I'm thinking more multi-day refeeds like diet breaks. I think those are more effective. So spending a full week, for example, and, and really trying to push volume up a little bit by, hey, on everything you're going to add, like on your last set, you're going to go to failure. So like, let's say you have three sets of 10, you do two sets of 10, then you do one set of max reps, which maybe you, squeeze out an extra five reps. But if you do that across everything, you end up squeezing out quite a bit extra tonnage, which is volume. So it's reps times sets times load. And that's a lot of volume that's going to be added on just from doing some diet breaks or refeeds. Uh, But those are the main things I'm looking at. I'm not looking at much more. Um, for some individuals, <clears throat> I still believe that there is a uh, a response, uh, a dose response effect with cortisol levels. So somebody might have some physiological changes from a diet break, even though diet break research doesn't really lend itself to show that much. I think it's hard to track, and I think that the... the con, uh, the, the participants within the studies just aren't the best participants to show that most of the time they're college kids because that's who they can get to do these studies. Most of the time they're getting paid to do this and they have very minimal stress or responsibilities in life. So it's like, Hey, go to school and then come over here, come to the, uh, follow this diet and come to the lab and get a lift in after class. You know what I mean? Like, You're going to learn a lot from those, and obviously we do, but most of the time that's what research is. Not all research, but a lot of research is. So I'm much more interested in using diet breaks with individuals who maybe have, who who are parents, work a full-time job, and are trying to lose 30 pounds. They might have more stress in their life. Are they a chronic dieter? Do they already have thyroid dysfunction coming into the situation? So on and so forth. So. With those individuals, I might be looking at more. I might be uh, asking questions about their menstrual cycle, about their sleep, about their stress levels, about looking at weight loss and body composition as they do it because if we see like a whoosh effect where they drop a lot of water when we increase carbs, it means that they are chronically stressed and we may need to figure out a way to cycle in these diet breaks and refeeds more frequently or better manage stress so we're not retaining water and that's going to mask any weight that you are losing, so on and so forth. So there's a lot to it. But for the most part, for most people, when I look at refeeds, I'm looking at performance and recovery, as well as just the psychological stress factor. All right. Chavo 11 Bravo. Using knee wraps all the time during squats. Um, this is one where not that much research is actually favoring them, to be honest with you. And I still wear knee wraps. So, um, there was a, uh, a recent study on it actually in this year, and it's called effect of Neoprene knee sleeve on performance in muscle activity in men and women during high intensity vo- high volume resistance training by Hatfield et al. Um, basically, they they I mean they took people resistance training lifters completed six sets of leg press to failure at eighty percent of one RM both with and without knee sleeves. Um, they tracked a bunch of different data. Blah blah blah. Basically, found that it didn't do anything. Right? Um, you know, if you like wearing knee sleeves, wear them. Um, don't wear them if you don't. Because at this point, like, it doesn't really appear to do much at all. It doesn't improve in performance in any of the studies um, with some maximal loads. And I've looked at quite a few studies on this because they've done it multiple times and they've recreated the studies multiple times and there hasn't been anything significant Shown So for the most part, I don't think knee sleeves do much at all. I still wear knee sleeves because I think it's a placebo thing. You know, like I feel better. Like I notice my knees get creaky if I don't wear them. I don't know if like the knee sleeves keep my legs warm because the warehouse gym gets cold or if it's just a mental thing. It doesn't really matter at this point. You know, to me, if, if I know that it's going to help my performance, that's all that matters. Right. So sometimes we have to remember that research may show one thing. Um, And this is where you can't do a study on knee sleeves and have a bunch of people come into the study who are obsessed with knee sleeves. Like, if you have all your participants who are like, knee sleeves help me a lot, they probably will help a lot. Not because they're making them better when they wear them, but when they take them off, it makes them worse. And that's placebo. So... We have to be cautious with that with everything, right? And that's why they have to control the participants that go into these studies. But for the most part, it showed that nothing really happens. I still wear them. I would say if you're a power lifter that's squatting crazy numbers, like when I think of, you know, Westside Conjugate, jargon are like pro uh, power lifters, usually geared, like that are lifting... 800 to 1200 pound squats like crazy crazy numbers yeah they should wear knee sleeves like there might be something to those those guys aren't being researched though but for all of us who are squatting human no <laughs> like human numbers in the squat rack yeah they're not really gonna do anything uh, if you feel like they do it's it's a placebo effect and that's great and you should continue using them because it's probably helping you out Teresa clobucar is two protein supplements a day bad one shake and one bar or two shakes per day no not necessarily um i said no on my story and somebody kind of commented back Uh, they DM me and asked me if I uh, would say that it's worse because you get less micronutrients because protein supplements don't have the same amount of micronutrients in it. And I countered with not really because most protein sources aren't going to be super micronutrient dense anyway. If you're eating grass-fed beef or grass-fed steaks, whole eggs, stuff like that, then yeah, of course. But that makes up a small amount of most people's protein intake because it's high in fat. So when we consider the leaner protein sources like chicken, turkey, tuna, fish, low-fat dairy, stuff like that. Um, Usually the leaner the protein source, the less micronutrients are in it. And you can have a protein shake-rich diet while still having a multivitamin, a green drink, multiple servings of fruits and vegetables, blah, 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 and still get plenty of micronutrients. So you have to go work really hard to avoid getting your micronutrients in. Now, if somebody is doing the IIFYM game too hard, like they are uh, drinking multiple shakes per day, having a fiber supplement and just having like pop tarts and shit like that. Yeah, of course, you're going to be missing out on micronutrients. But for the most part, you know, having a few... Protein shakes a day isn't bad. I don't recommend it to most people because uh, whole food is going to be more filling and it has a higher thermic effect of food. So when we consider getting or getting leaner or staying lean, whole food's probably going to be a better uh, bang for your buck in terms of calories because you're just going to get more out of it, you know. Uh, however, what I would say is that there's nothing wrong with having a shake or a bar or two because if we look at research studies on protein overfeeding where they're trying to get people to eat 1.5 to 2 grams or more of protein – Per, uh, per pound of body weight, so grams per pound of body weight, um, we, we don't see any adverse effects of their health at all. There's actually no issues whatsoever with it. Um, so there's nothing wrong with it. I just always say like if you're dieting, it's probably better to get voluminous food and unprocessed food because the more unprocessed foods are, the more filling and satiating it is and the higher the thermic effect of food. So your body actually burns more calories digesting unprocessed foods than it does processed foods, which makes a lot of sense because if you look at processed foods, there processed. So they're already kind of broken down for you. So it makes a lot of sense. So if you're dieting, probably wouldn't recommend it, but it's not necessarily bad. Hey guys, I want to take a quick second to shout out the sponsor of this podcast, which is myself. It's my own app, the tailored trainer, which is the simple solution to actually looking like you lift. My goal with the tailored trainer was to do just that. I had countless amount of people coming into our coaching to get nutrition guidance from us and they needed training help as well. And I was tired of hearing people tell me, I don't look like I lift. I'm in the gym hours every week. I'm training hard. I'm pushing myself. I'm sweating my ass off, but I don't look like I work out. What is the deal? And the deal is simple. There isn't a periodized plan backing up the effort they are putting in the gym. They don't have progressive overload methods and metrics and measurements inside their programming that are going to guide them to the result they're after, which is why I wanted to create an app that did that for you. Not only does it have actually systemized programs that are effective for your goal, for your schedule, for your body type, and for your experience, because there are tons of programs in there. That's why it's called the tailored trainer, because you can literally tailor your training to your lifestyle and your schedule and your experience level, but it's also going to have the software and the metrics inside to make sure that it's progressive and periodized without you even realizing it. You don't have to do anything, and it is programmed properly to get you to progress. Which is why I always tell people, stop aimlessly working out using influencers' Instagram posts and YouTube videos as your plan. Start actually tailoring the training process to you. And you can do that by downloading this app. It's less than $1 a day. And you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net to read more about it, see screenshots of the app live itself, see reviews from some of the people using it, and see a personal letter from myself as to why I created this app in the first place. So once again, head over to tailoredtrainer.net. Now, let's get back into the podcast. Curtis Towers, how to set realistic goals. Um, So this is a tough one to answer because... I think it just depends on the type of goal. Like if we're talking about uh, fat loss, I mean, we can be really, really specific here. It's like, number one, determine how much weight you want to lose. Then you can go 0.5 to 1% of total body weight per week. Um, And then you can calculate how long that would take to lose that, right? So if you're 200 pounds and you want to lose 20 pounds and 0.5, 5 to 1% of your total body weight is 1 to 2 pounds. You can say how many weeks on average do I need to to spend in order to lose 20 pounds. And I would probably err on the side of one pound per week, so 0.5, simply because there's going to be weeks that aren't the best. You're going to take diet breaks, you're going to fall out, there's going to be those weeks too. Um, and then if you have great weeks instead, you get there sooner. You know? But that's, I mean, that's a really easy way to determine your goals. And obviously, you got to add in the factor of if your body's stressed out and not ready to diet, you got to go through a priming phase or something like that, like, which we do with a lot of our clients, then we might shift gears and spend a little bit of time before the diet doing that. But in other areas of life, I think it also is difficult to answer because it just depends on what we're striving for, you know. In general, my philosophy on goal setting is more about the person you want to become and then associating goals that line up with that person. I think that a lot of people set goals because of what they think they should do, right? They set goals because of what people say or what people think or what they were told or what other people achieve and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, it's it's your life, it's your time, it's your day-to-day, it's your money, it's your world, it's your house, it's your career, it's your body, it's your everything. You should set goals for yourself. But in order to really be happy, you need to determine who you want to become. And I tell this to people who are in the same industry as me all the time, because if you just focus everything you got on on achieving a goal that you have in your mind, you might achieve that goal and realize that it actually doesn't fulfill you whatsoever. It was just a a trophy to prove yourself to other people because you see what other people are doing you feel like you should match up to that and you should create that, right? And in my point of view is you should determine what kind of life you want to live, what kind of person you want to be. For me, I'm thinking, what kind of leader do I want to be? What kind of coach do I want to be? What kind of CEO or entrepreneur do I want to be? What kind of father do I want to be? What kind of parent and white husband do I want to be, right? And once I know that, then I can say, what kind of business does that person run? What kind of goals should I set for that business? What kind of body does that guy have? What kind of goals should I set for my health, right? And then I align my targets with that overall goal. So that goal might be a big distance goal, right? It might be three, four, five, 10 years away of what I ultimately wanna be the biggest, best, badass, most accomplished version of myself. But then I can reverse engineer that and say, okay, that's who I will be, but who's that person right now? Where do I need to shift my habits and actions to line up with that? And what should my immediate goal be for the end of the month, end of the quarter, end of the year? Like, What should my close end goal be and how does that align with that big, big long-term picture? right because then I'm I'm aligned with my north star with my main focus right but I'm working on these mini goals that I've essentially reverse engineered in order to get there and it's all aligned with one specific thing who I want to become because at the end of the day that's what matters most what you want out of life so um Long-winded answer there, but I think like, uh, and I mean, it's really not a long-winded answer. I could probably do a whole podcast on that. But in gen- general, how to set realistic goals, I think it's it's knowing where your North Star is, knowing where that big thing is, and then being able to reverse that and near that and line it up properly, right? And the same thing goes with your body composition. If you know that you want to lose 20 pounds, it, do the math. How long will that take to get there? What's your timeline like? What social events or holidays or whatever fall in between now and then that you got to plan for? And give yourself some wiggle room on, maybe add some weeks to the timeline to avoid falling behind, right? And then look through your actions, look through your environment, look through your habits, look through your life, get a coach. Do you have structure? Do you have a diet plan? Do you have a way of eating? Do you have a training program? Dial in the necessities that you need in order to be on that right path and have accountability for it, and then just move forward. It's a reverse engineering process. Candice.Flaherty, uh, If you gain muscle and lose fat during a building phase, does that mean something was done wrong? Because you shouldn't be gaining body fat as well. Because shouldn't you be gaining body fat as well? Yes and no. I mean, if you – so like there's a few things here. If you gain muscle and lose fat during a build phase, it depends where you started, right? Because if somebody comes to me and they're like, I want to build muscle and they're brand new to all this stuff and I put them in a gaining phase and they lose fat too – they're just new, right? Newbies respond really well to all kinds of things. So if it's a new person that I'm not surprised at all, you probably shouldn't gain fat during that process because you're so new to it, your body is hyper-responsive and it's gonna react and respond and adapt extremely well to what I'm giving it. The other side of that to remember too is that um, it, it could also depend on whether or not you're, you're actually losing fat, right? So there's a lot of people, I've, done, I've seen this with a lot of women, who recomp, right? They lose fat, build muscle, but they really don't they built muscle and they look like they lost fat. Their body fat percentage may have dropped, but only because their uh, lean tissue percentage, their muscle mass percentage went up, but they didn't lose body fat, right? So if somebody is in a controlled surplus, so we're in like a lean gaining phase, and they're able to gain pure muscle and they train really hard, they they dial things in like they haven't before, and they just build muscle for six, eight, 12 weeks, whatever it is, and they look leaner at the end. They didn't lose body fat, sometimes they do, But they don't always lose body fat. But if you add muscle to your frame, it lowers the percentage of your weight that is body fat. So you actually lower your body fat percentage without actually losing body fat tissue, right? And now you look leaner and better and stronger. So there's a lot of people who come to us who are uh, skinny fat, and we hear this all the time with people. So this is you. Click the apply button in the description. Sign up for coaching. You'll get a free call. We can chat with you about this. We hear this all the time. I want to look like a workout. And this is a very common thing for these people. They want to look like they lift. They are lift. They're just not doing it the right way. They're not dieting the right way. And they end up in this place that, that is skinny fat. And we take them through a lean gaining phase, which is at or just slightly above maintenance. They build muscle, but it looks like they lose body fat. And realistically, is we are dropping body fat percentage, and this is the type of recomp, but we're not losing a ton of fat pounds, pounds of body fat. We're gaining muscle, and it's shifting the way our body composition is, right? So um, can you do it? Absolutely. You can absolutely uh, lose fat and build muscle during a building phase, and it doesn't necessarily mean you did anything wrong. It just means that your starting point was at a certain place where it allowed you to do so. Um, And even if you're not a newbie, if you're a more advanced individual... And let's say you put yourself in a surplus, but also tr- change your training. So maybe you're advanced, but you've been doing a style of training that is very different than bodybuilding or physique training really should look like. And you increase calories to go into surplus and shift your training to a high-volume bodybuilding-style program. Chances are you, you're probably going to build some muscle and lose some fat because it's such a new stimulus to you that, that novelty stimulus allows you to lose fat and build muscle. Um, and part of it is, is the the quote-unquote surplus you thought you were in. You're actually not in because that change in training is shifting your energy expenditure as well. And you're burning and utilizing a lot more calories than you were pr- previously, especially carbohydrates a lot of the times in this situation. And what happens is you bring calories up, but you also increase volume and it ends up making that increase in calories actually just maintenance. So you're not even in a surplus. You're actually just at maintenance. So that's, I, I've seen that happen as well. So it kind of depends. Like, are you, you know, how new are you to this? Are you changing your training dramatically? Are you increasing volume dramatically while you're increasing calories? Um, are you not losing any, body fat, but you're just purely gaining muscle and it's shifting the way your body composition looks as if you are losing body fat because your body fat percentage is dropping. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot here. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything is done wrong. I mean, that's a perfect world situation. All right. Uh, next question. This is an odd one. Andra O3 underscore CZ underscore thoughts on N N N no nut November with a laughing emoji. Um, so I don't know if they're joking or not. I don't know if this is a real thing. I actually think it might be because I know, um, uh, in Sima uh, who I'm might be getting on the podcast. We've been going back and forth talking, so he might be coming on. Um, he has something going on called no fap slash no porn November. Um, so, uh, that's not the same thing. Uh, but I don't know what fap is no fap, but no Porn November is, is what he's promoting. So this is one of those topics where like, it's obviously a, a weird one for a lot of people. Uh, listen, sometimes people get uncomfortable with this. I don't, I don't get uncomfortable with anything so I can talk about anything. Um, I think that uh, the idea of no, no, like that's stupid. I think sex is healthy, especially with your your partner. So like you should be advocating healthy sex with your partner constantly. That's that's part of love. And I think that's extremely healthy for, uh, I mean, there's studies to show for health and longevity and and obviously an array of other things it's healthy for. Uh, but just for health and longevity alone, it's super healthy for hormone development, all those things. So I definitely don't think you should get rid of that completely. Um, now I do like and agree with Enzima with the no porn thing. I think that's, uh, it, it's getting more Popular of a topic that's being discussed amongst men, which I think it's a good thing that it is because uh, it's it's crazy how much porn is actually out there, believe it or not. But I um, mean, this is obviously not my expertise or what this podcast is typically about. Uh, but there's a really interesting topic uh, topic of discussion, I believe, on Mark Bell's Power Project with uh, Doctor Andrew Huberman talking about this, and uh, he's a really good person to listen to in regards to these kind of things because he is a neuro scientist, neurobiologist. Um, so he knows a lot when it comes to the brain to comes to dopamine, serotonin, all these neurotransmitters, stuff like that. And there's a real issue with a lot of uh, porn watching, video game playing, stuff like that when it comes to dopamine and serotonin levels. So there's a lot of people who will deplete the shit out of their neurotransmitters in their brain and their dopamine, uh, their reward system by watching too much porn or playing too much video games. It's it's instant gratification. It's, it's fast tracking the gratification reward system process in the brain and it can dysregulate what we enjoy in life. So it's actually showing, I mean, there was, he had an example of somebody who uh, was kind of getting depressed and he was getting uh, diagnosed with ADHD and stuff like that and he removed all this stuff and he actually saw a significant increase in mental health. He got rid of uh, the depressive symptoms. He even had the doctors actually say to him that he was no longer uh he probably no longer had ADHD. So they didn't even prescribe anything. So they actually took back their diagnosis of him, which is crazy to hear doctors do that. But, uh, but the point is, is, is it really kind of just feeds off this dopamine cycle. So, uh, and it's, it's the same discussion. This is not just isolated to this one thing, but it's the same discussion with um, most drugs, right? Drugs give you a very quick dopamine response. And because of that, it can deplete your dopamine system. And what can happen is it can cause you to not have much dopamine or any significant pleasure or reward from day-to-day activities in normal life. So when we consider normal sex, when we consider our relationships, when we consider work and promotions and training in the gym and things like that, all of those things require work. You have to court somebody before you can date them. You need to court your wife or husband or significant other right before you can sleep with them. You need to train your ass off to get an endorphin release. You need to work weeks and weeks and weeks in the gym before you see progressive overload, right? You need to diet consistently and track macros and stay organized and work with the coach in order to see progress made over months. There's all these things in your career and anything skills, Right? There's a lot of these things that are extremely rewarding in life, but the beautiful thing about them that actually helps our dopamine system stay healthy is that they require work. There is something that you have to do. There's a habit, there's actions, there's work, there's effort that has to be put in prior and most likely very consistently in order to reap the reward, whereas video games, drugs, and porn doesn't allow that to happen. And that's why it's unhealthy, and that's why a lot of people are advocating um, this thing, and, and SEMA is putting this thing out there, which I think is great and it's no porn November. So um, I haven't heard of NNN, no November. I think healthy sex with your partner is amazing and you probably should continue that. But on the the porn drug, dopamine, all that kind of stuff, this is why it's a common thing. You know, It's up to you to make your own decision of what you want to do or how often you want to partake in any of these things I'm talking about. There's no judgment there. I'm just simply explaining because a lot of people hear that question are probably like, well, number one, why would he choose that question? Number two, why, why, why do you need to stop that? Why is that a big deal? And this is why it is a more common topic, uh, being discussed. And there is some science behind it. And I think it's actually a really cool, healthy thing that they're trying to promote. Cheryl Nasso, best continuing education resources. Um, so I think that, you know, if you're, uh, I'll categorize this into two scenarios, I think for the gen pop person, obviously I'm going to say tailoredcoachingmethod.com blog, we have so much content on the website, so definitely go visit the blog. Um, there's a plethora of great blogs out there. I would literally look through my guest list of who I've interviewed on this podcast and follow those people and see what they have for blogs. You know, there's, there's great people, Mike Matthews Legion. They have a great blog. Um, I know that, uh, Jordan site puts out a lot of great content. He's been on the podcast, uh, Eric Helms and Eric Trexler and those guys put out a lot of great, Content as well. Jeff Nippard, Chris Baraka. I've had so many people on the podcast that put out great free information. That's where a lot of Gen Pop people should live. I think Gen Pop should spend a lot of time to consuming as much free content as possible and getting some books. Um, and then for coaches and, and advanced uh, clients and Gen Pop people who really want to take it to the next level and learn more and more and more and kind of be their own coach and uh, scientists, if you will, a researcher on themselves. I would go the route of, you know, certification courses and research reviews. You know, MNU is one of my favorites for uh, nutrition. PN is great. Um, I also love uh, everything Mass Research Review does. Weightology is awesome. Alan Aragon's Research Review. Um, There's a ton of great blogs out there as well. Stronger by Science is a great podcast and blog uh, for a lot of good free content. And they're, they're both a part of the Mass Research Review, which is a paid subscription as well. Uh, But definitely for the more advanced person. I mean, if you want to read a blog on there, get ready to read a 13 to 30,000 word blog. And I'm not exaggerating. So those are some great resources that I would suggest and recommend to uh, the different categories of people. Kyleitos underscore way. Is pre-workout bad for you? I drink a cup of coffee a day. Not at all. I don't think that is, pre-workout in general is not bad for you at all. I think overdoing caffeine can be bad for you. It can tax your adrenals and it can cause some issues um, with cortisol levels and stress management. But it's not bad for you. I mean, caffeine's great. It's a performance enhancer. It's a nervous system stimulant. One cup of coffee a day is nothing compared to most people. And the upper end of caffeine consumption is, on average is actually pretty fucking high. You'd be surprised. But if you head over to examine.com and you just look up caffeine, like you can Google search examine slash caffeine or just examine space caffeine and you'll see their page and you'll be able to calculate based on your body weight, how much, uh, caffeine you should do. And there's a range and you should start at the bottom end range because everybody has a different sensitivity. Uh, there's different enzymes in the body that actually metabolize, uh, caffeine. So we all, all have a different metabolic response to caffeine, which means how do we process and digest and break down caffeine? For some people you can handle a lot like myself, for other people, you can't, and you get super wired and jittery. So that range is there for a Start on the lower end and then work your way up. But one cup of coffee a day is, is fine for almost anybody I've ever worked with. Um, and pre-workout's great because it's not just caffeine, but if you get a good pre-workout like legions, which I really, really do, uh, promote and love because it's, it's fortified. It's like really dosed with everything that you really want. Um, you're going to get the the most important things, beta alanine, uh, citrulline malate, caffeine, obviously, and betaine, right? And there's a couple other extras in there, but those are the primary supplements that are proven to actually do something in your training that's going to allow you to have better blood flow, better pump, better muscle endurance, better strength, better recovery, better hydration, and then obviously the nervous system stimulant of caffeine. And you can also get non-stimulant so I actually use more non-stimulant pre-workout from Legion than anything else. So if you want that, Legion.com slash boom boom. You can save 20%. Kova Fitness underscore IF. What do you think about ramp upsets for accessory exercises? Uh, I don't like them. I, I think that it's hard for me to say it too because I know people who use them. Uh, I know coaches that use them, and I really respect and like those coaches. I just don't see the value in them because by the time I get to an accessory movement, I'm already warmed up. So if I'm doing a leg day – For example, today I have squats and then I'm gonna do some RDLs after that. So I'm going to go through a full dynamic warm-up, then I'm gonna do multiple sets of squats ramping up to my heavy squats, then I'm gonna squat and then I'm gonna move to an RDL. Right? I'm I'm warmed up by the RDL. I don't need to do more working sets. And what I have found is if I do warm-up sets, I actually just fatigue myself more because I'm still putting the muscle through a full range of motion under tension, even if it's a lighter weight. So I end up fatiguing myself more and it actually lowers my total volume. I would rather jump right into a working set and if I can add more weight on top of that, great, but I'm totally fine jumping right into it. And I think that's a better way to go to save your energy and actually be able to perform at heavier loads. Doug underscore fitness underscore how to help a client that doesn't log their food or accountability spreadsheets. Um, I think this is where a lot of people are, uh, they tend to, there. You, you can't try to fit a client into a box, right? So if you are struggling with a client and a client's not adhering or following the exact protocols that you typically use or the methods you use, I understand that being frustrating, but at the same time, you cannot blame that client if your systems aren't the best systems for you. And rather than trying to fit the client into a box, you need to prioritize adjusting and diversifying your methods and your route of coaching those methods in order to fit the client's needs and get them the results they want and that they hired you for. So I think a lot of times this is the situation where I go, you know what, you need to adapt not the other way around. Um, If the client is just lacking education, that's a different story. You know, there's times where the client might not be adhering to something, not because they don't want to, but because they don't understand how to. And so you need to do a better job at educating the client. That's why we work so damn hard to make sure everything is clear cut, extremely well explained and thorough, and you have nonstop access to our coaches because we want to make sure that you understand everything 100%. And you have that full buy-in and clarity of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um... But yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day, like you need to adapt to the individual. You know, that's why we call ourselves tailored coaching methods because it's about tailoring to the individual. Rapania, uh, how do you handle stress? There's there's two things that come to mind when I when I like think of this question, um, and it's it's. A combo, right? There's the daily habits you gotta be aware of, right? So every single day I wake up before everybody in the house, right? I want some quiet time. I meditate. I read. I go on a walk. I do my things that I need to do in order to put me in a place that is healthy, right? I get my sleep. That's a big one. If you're not getting enough sleep, get enough sleep. I train. I do all these things on a daily basis because I know that those things keep me in the best place mentally, physically, spiritually, to ensure that I am constantly handling stress well. Right. Those are my stress management practices, so to speak, and habits. But then the other side of me wants to answer it in a way of, it's a mindset shift. So I think that there's a, there was a time in my life where I kind of stopped and was like, you know what? Pressure, and this is a quote, pressure is a privilege, right? I kind of realized that pressure is a privilege and the stress I am facing is actually due to what I am kind of putting on myself, right? The things I stress about are the things I love and want and desire. So the things I have anxiety about, things I see overwhelmed with, the things I get stressed about. Quite literally, it is my job. It's the physical push I do to myself in the gym Dieting, things like that. It's my parenthood, right? It's me being a dad. It's me being married. It's me being a homeowner. It's me doing all the shit that I've always wanted to do. So at a certain point, you gotta kind of stop and, and reframe your brain and go, you know what? This stress, this pressure, it's actually a privilege. It's a gift. My stress is a gift because it means that I am doing the things I've always wanted to do. And therefore, I just need to deal with this. I need to accept this stress. And that stress is gonna seem like such a smaller load on you as soon as you accept it. So instead of trying to fight it or avoid it or eliminate, quote unquote, all the stress in your life, I would recommend people actually accept the stress that's being placed on you and understand that you probably placed it on yourself because you were doing things that you love and you should just accept it and deal with it and learn how to build your stress capacity to it. And the first way to be able to do that is quite literally just accepting that it is what it is and understanding that you do it to yourself. I think if you have that mindset shift, I think it'll, it'll pay, uh, pay off tremendously. Uh, let's answer a couple more. Hall Shay CBD for sleep and recovery. So CBD has been, uh, very anecdotally, uh, expressed as a positive thing. And when I say anecdotally, I mean, there's a lot of people who swear by it. There's a lot of people who have great, uh, results from it. I've actually seen plenty of dogs with arthritis and shit like that actually respond really well to it too. Uh, just anecdotally speaking, Um, the problem is there's just not that much research showing anything, right? There's actually a lot of research that just shows nothing at all. Like it's like basically like, Oh no, it doesn't do anything. Um, there was a recent study that kind of showed a little bit though. Uh, it was called the effects of cannabino, cannabidiol, sorry, supplementation on skeletal muscle generation, regeneration after intense resistance training, men et al. It was this year, uh, and they basically just wanted to see the post-exercise, uh, Recovery with CBD supplementation versus not. Um, And CBD, this is what they concluded as. So CBD supplementation led to lower levels of muscle damage biomarkers and greater squat, one rep max values. Uh, but not counter-movement jump height, so just strength. 72 hours after exercise, but supplementation didn't significantly impact any outcomes in the 24 to 48-hour time frame. Um, so this is some evidence. I don't know. It's kind of odd that it helped 72 hours later, but not 24 to 48, which could be a good thing because, you know, if you're doing a heavy squat session, you're probably going to, like, I'm training legs and squats today on Tuesday, and I won't train them again till Friday. So there's definitely going to be 72 hours in there. So it could be very helpful, you know, for delayed on to muscle soreness. Um, but the, you know, it did lead to lower levels, but there wasn't a lot of difference. So it wasn't like huge changes in muscle soreness, but it was perceived changes. Uh, so we have to note that, but this is the first study to really show much of anything at all. So what I would say is that if you, this is kind of like the knee sleeve things. If you feel like CBD helps you, then keep taking it. Um, I know CBD is going to be different if there's THC in it as well. So if you're consuming CBD that has other uh, cannabinoids in it like THC, you're getting a more full spectrum marijuana supplement. Uh, and that's probably going to lead to different results. I don't have a lot of experience with the combination just because, uh, I, I mean, back in the day, but I didn't, wasn't isolating CBD by itself. Um, and I don't partake in either of those really anymore. So it's hard for me to say for sure, from an anecdotal perspective, but if you're combining the two, I I don't think this this question or this this study applies because this is strictly for CBD. And I do know know that cannabinoids are kind of similar to the amino acids in the sense that you're gonna get more bang for your buck out of eating full spectrum aminos, right? Essential amino acids, so EAAs instead of BCAs or whey protein or food because it has all the amino acids instead of just three isolated ones. It's kind of similar with cannabinoids because there's a ton of different cannabinoids inside of marijuana, not just CBD or just THC. And then to add to that, um, this study, when looking at just CBD, it led to a little bit. So a little bit lower, which is still there. I will take anything. So for me personally, um, what it would take for me to start taking CBD on a regular basis would be for a couple more uh, studies to come out. Um, And maybe I'll test this and just get my own anecdotal feedback. But I think right now, based on this research, it's like I would need a couple more studies to replicate that because Anytime there's studies that come out, you kind of need to have multiple studies showing the same findings for it to be like, okay, yep, it works. Uh, right now, I believe it a little bit more, uh, but there's still not a lot of research that didn't show any difference. So I don't think one study showing that there is some difference is enough for me to, to buy into it too much. But again, placebo, if you feel better, if you sleep better, if you know it's better, dude. Keep taking it. By all means, I think that's a great idea because there's a lot of things uh, in training and nutrition that are strictly placebo and we shouldn't shy away from admitting that or or avoid using them just because it's placebo. We should use them more because placebo works, period. All right, last question. Uh, Bryn Wesch for, newbie, for a newbie, where is the best place to begin with training? Um, the best place to begin with training, in my opinion, would be a, uh, for a brand new person. I would go with a three-day full-body power-building style approach. So you'd have like a bench squat deadlift day um, or a squat bench deadlift day. And then you have accessory and isolation work following it that's bodybuilding Specific Full body every time, it's gonna spread your volume out, it's gonna make sure you don't get overly sore in any one area, Um, and it's a good way to keep volume and and intensity pretty low overall by just training three days a week, because you're a newbie, you're gonna respond really well to anything you do, you might as well do a minimal damage style program, which is gonna be a three-day full body approach. The power building approach is gonna work best because then you spend some time developing skill around the compound lifts, which is gonna pay dividends to build muscle and strength over time, and then you can just have isolation work afterwards, like curls, lateral raises, leg extensions, RDLs, things like that, just to slap on some muscle and get better at the movements. And then after six months to a year of doing something like that, I would shift into an upper lower split with the exact same approach. Power building, compound lifts, powerlifting style compound lifts, and then bodybuilding accessory work. For most people, that's probably the best bet if your goal is body composition, no matter what. Um But for a brand newbie, I would go three days a week, full body, power building style approach. I would stick with that for as long as I can milk out the gains. I would say probably six months to a year before you're going to need to add a fourth day. Or if it's before six months, you can handle it from a recovery perspective. You can handle the recovery jump and you just really enjoy training. You want to be in the gym more. There's nothing wrong with adding that fourth day sooner. Uh, But in general, I think that's, that's probably the best approach alright guys that's a wrap for today a little extra bonus Q&A for you guys I hope you enjoyed it as always leave us a 5 star rating and review we greatly appreciate it and it allows us to climb up in the rankings on iTunes which uh, makes me want to suggest as well share this with a friend because that also helps us a ton and it gets the word out there it lets us spread the message and last but not least make sure you check out tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash blog to check out a ton of free content there's also free guides on the website um, there is so much free stuff on there I cannot encourage you enough to go check it out. Alright guys, I'll catch you next time.